The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning, Bereans. I want us to spend our time this morning looking at the question, what is Islam? I wonder how many of us could really answer that. You know, each week we hear about the persecuted church. And we hear that the predominant religion, now Stan tricked us this morning, but you know, the predominant religions in most countries is Islam. And we learn that Christianity's greatest threat in these countries is Islamic persecution. I mean, we hear it week after week. So we hear about Islam almost every Sunday in our service. We hear about it from the mainstream media. But how many of you understand what they teach? What it is that, you know, the Quran teaches? Now, since Islam is the main persecutor of Christianity, I think we should know what they believe. Now, if you don't know what Islam teaches, you're going to fall prey to the lies that are repeated constantly by our politicians in the media, that Islam is a religion of peace, right? We hear that all the time. They're peaceful. It's a religion of peace. We hear that groups like ISIS and other Islamic terrorists, they don't represent Islam, okay? They're not the norm. They're going against the religion, whatever. We're being lied to, people, when they tell us Islam is a religion of peace, now, in seeking to find the answers to what Islam believes, let's be, let me begin with just a brief history of Islam to explain to you where this religion even came from, how it ended up being what it is today. Muhammad, who is the founder of Islam, was born on the Arabian Peninsula in the town of Mecca, right here, around A.D. 570. He was born to a widowed mother, who died just six years later. So he basically grew up poor. He was orphaned. He was on the margins of society. And the society he lived in was controlled by tribal chiefs and trading merchants. Well, he got a job working for his uncle, Abu, as a camel herder. And although his uncle had some standing in the community, Muhammad himself didn't really rise out of the poverty that he was born into until he was 25 years old. And the way he got out of that poverty is he married a wealthy widow, Khadija. She was 15 years older than him. He married her, and all of a sudden, hey, no more poverty. Great idea. Now, his wife's trading business gave Muhammad an opportunity to travel and acquire knowledge that really wasn't accessible to the local population. So he would later use this to his advantage by incorporating the stories that he had come across into his revelations from Allah, particularly the tales from the early Christian religions which dealt with Judaism and Christianity. Now, having attained a comfortable lifestyle and the idle time that wealth affords, Muhammad would wander off occasionally for periods of meditation and contemplation. And one day, at the age of 40, he told his wife that he had been visited by the angel Gabriel in a dream. This is kind of where it all started, okay? Gabriel came to Muhammad, and thus began a series of revelations, which lasted almost until his death 23 23 years later. Now, let me clarify a few words so we'll understand what we're talking about here. The Quran 
is a collection of words that Muhammad attributed to Allah. So this is supposedly their Bible. This is supposedly the Word of God to them. The Hadith is a collection of narrations on the life and deeds of Muhammad. So these would be sayings of Muhammad, things that Muhammad, not, not that Allah said, but Muhammad said, which is just as high as Allah and their religion. The Sirah is a recorded biography. The Sunnah is uh, Muhammad's way of life, on which Islamic law, which is Sharia, is based. All right, so hang on to those words. We're going to kind of see some of this stuff as we go through here. Now, with Muhammad's wife's influence and support, he proclaimed himself a prophet in the same lineage as that of Abraham and Yeshua. And he begins trying to convert those around him to his new religion. So he just got these revelations. He said, I'm going to start something new. I'm a prophet. I'm online with Abraham. I'm online with Yeshua. And he just begins to teach stuff. Now, he narrated the Quran to those who believed him, telling them that it was the word of Allah heard only by himself. So this is a one-man religion, okay? He's, Allah's just telling him this stuff. He's the prophet. He's communicating it. Now, according to early Muslim historians, the Meccans didn't mind Muhammad practicing his religion, nor did they feel threatened by his promotion of it. But this changed after the self-proclaimed prophet began attacking their religion, including their customs and their ancestors. So they started getting irritated with him when he starts attacking them. Now, at first, Muhammad was only successful with some friends and family. After 13 years... The street preacher could boast of only a hundred determined followers who called themselves Muslims. So you got to give this guy credit, man. He's pushing this 13 years. He's pushing and pushing, and now he's got a hundred followers after 13 years who consider themselves Muslims. Now, the death of his uncle, Abu, in AD 619, left Muhammad without a protector against the Meccan leadership because he kind of, you know, kept him protected, so to speak, because he was in with the leadership. And the leadership was gradually losing patience with Muhammad and his constant attacks on them. <clears throat> well, Muhammad's search for political alliance led him to a treaty of war against the Meccans with the people of Medina, which was another Arab town uh, not too far to the north. And this was really the last straw for the Meccans. You know, they finally decided we had enough of them, so they decided let's capture him, let's put him to death. We had enough of this troublemaker. That was it. Well, in that year, Muhammad fled, okay? And he went up here to Mecca, and uh, he left Mecca and went to Medina in 622. Now, that's an important date because that marks the beginning of the Muslim calendar. Now, he's been going for 13 years now, but when he gets to Medina, this is marks the beginning. This is kind of a change in the whole thing. Because when he gets to Medina, his message quickly becomes more intolerant and ruthless, particularly the more power that he gained. Islam's holiest book clearly reflects this contrast with the later parts of the Quran adding violence and earthly defeats at the hands of the Muslims to the woes of eternal damnation that the earlier parts of the book promised to those who didn't believe. So when he began, when he was in Mecca, you know, he would write stuff, and if you don't believe, you're going to be judged by God and all this. When he gets to Medina, now it's like, we're going to kill you if you don't believe what we believe. I mean, so things have, they're accelerating, they're changing. It was at Medina 
that Islam evolved from a relatively peaceful religion borrowed from others into a military force that was intended to govern all aspects of society. During these last 10 years of Muhammad's life, infidels were evicted or enslaved, converted upon the point of death, and even rounded up and slaughtered, depending upon expediency. Now, to fund his quest for control, Muhammad directed his followers to raid Meccan caravans in the holy months, when the victims would least expect it. So they're raiding these caravans. Uh, the (laughs) The raids on the caravans preceded the first major battle involving a Muslim army, and that was the Battle of Badr. This was the spot where the Meccans had sent their own army to protect the caravans from the Muslim raiders. And although Muslims today like to claim they only attack others in self-defense, we know that's not true. This is clearly not the case in the time of Muhammad's lifetime. In fact, he had to compel his reluctant warriors with promises of paradise and assurances that their religion was more important than the lives of others. So what we believe people is more important than these people is we just kill them, take what they have. Well, Muhammad defeated the Meccan army at Badr, which emboldened him to become more and more you know, powerful and reach out and, and just do more damage. He conquered three local Jewish tribes at Medina. And from Medina, Muhammad waged a campaign of terror to which he openly attributed his success. Now, his gang of robbers launched raids in which communities were savaged, looted, murdered, and raped. The tribes around the Muslims began to convert to Islam out of self-preservation. Now, the excuse for the military campaign just began to shrink. They didn't have to fight anymore because all these people around them were just becoming Muslims so they wouldn't get killed. Muhammad told his followers that Muslims were meant to rule over other people. Supremacist teaching became the driving force behind jihad, and jihad became the driving force behind Islam. So Islam became centered completely around Muhammad. Of all the prophets, new converts are required to affirm only the legitimacy of Muhammad. And the Muslim leader even shares the Shahada with Allah. Anybody familiar with the Shahada? That's the Muslim confession of faith. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. So that's your you're claiming Allah and Muhammad, all right? That's and to this day, every Muslim must bow down five times a day towards Muhammad's birthplace. Muhammad died of a fever in AD 632 at the age of 63 with his violent religion spread all over Arabia. Now, over the next 14 centuries, the bloody legacy of this individual would be a constant challenge to those living on the borders of Islam's political power. The violence that Muslim armies would visit on people across North Africa, the Middle East, Europe, and into Asia, as far as the Indian subcontinent, is a tribute to a founder who practiced and promoted subjugation, rape, murder, and forced conversion. In his 1996 book, The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of World Order, Harvard Samuel Huntington warned us of deluding ourselves about the true nature of the Islamic threat. Huntington said some Westerners, including President Bill Clinton, have argued that the West does not have problems with Islam, but only with violent Islam extremists. 
Then he says, 1,400 years of history demonstrate otherwise. And that's what we're hearing, people. That's what you constantly hear. No, it's, it's a religion of peace. These people are outliers. They're just extremists. An Indonesian cleric, Abu Bakar Bashar, recently put it this way. He says, if the West wants to have peace, then they have to accept Islamic rule. In the Hadith, which is the collection of narratives of the life and deeds of Muhammad, says this, I have been ordered to fight the people till they say, none has the right to be worshipped but Allah. And if they say so, pray like our prayers, face our quibla, and slaughter as we slaughter, then their blood and property will be sacred to us, and we will not interfere with them. So, does Islam sound like a religion of peace? Does it even sound like a religion? (laughs) The Quran states, Muhammad is Allah's apostle. Those who follow him are harsh to unbelievers, but merciful to one another. Now, last week in our persecuted church time, we learned of some of Islam's more recent contributions to peace when Sharon talked about how in Burkina Faso in West Africa, Islamics attacked five churches and killed 70 Christians in April of 19, 2019. And since then, more than 200 churches have reportedly closed in Burkina Faso because of threats of further attacks. As many as 10,000 Christians have fled their homes. Now, while just over half of Burkina Faso's population is Muslim, the militants seek to force everyone to convert to Islam and those who refuse face brutal consequences. Now, this is important. I want you to hang on to this. In Burkina Faso, just over half of the population is Muslim. So that's an important thing because once they reach a dominant amount of people, then they begin to get very aggressive. Until then, they don't. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now, because you've got a lot of people saying, well, these are just radical Muslims. I mean, they really don't re- represent true Islam. Well, if you want to know what a people believe, let's say you want to know what a Christian believes, where do you go? Oh, the Bible, that would be a great idea, wouldn't it? Do you examine different Christians maybe to see what Christians believe? Maybe just pick out a Christian and follow them around and say, I'll figure out what... Well, that could be disastrous, right? <laughs> Anybody know what, who Westboro Baptist Church is? Any, you know who they are? Okay. So... If, if they're following Westboro Baptists, they're not going to have an idea what Christianity is all about, okay? They don't represent Christ, all right? <clears throat> they don't represent what he taught. If you want to know what Christianity teaches, go to the Bible. So if you want to know what Islam teaches, let's go to their Bible. Let's go to the Quran. Let's find out what the book says, and then we don't have to listen to these people who are saying, well, they're not following you know, the Quran. You know, there's always going to be people within a group that don't follow the teaching of the group, right? They just name, they follow them, you know, how many people call themselves Christians that don't have a clue even what the Bible says? So let's look at what Islam teaches and see if the terrorists are a fringe group or if in fact they represent true Islam. The term Islam means submission. It's one who wholly surrendered to the will of Allah. Islam consists in belief and practice. So before we look at what the Quran says about violence, 
I want to show you what it teaches about the Lord Yeshua. Let, let's start there. You know, Christians believe fundamentally of necessity that there's one true God. This true God is not Allah. This true God is not Krishna. It's not the God of Joseph Smith or Buddha or the Jews. This true God is the Lord Yeshua the Christ. 1 John 5.20 says, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Yeshua the Christ, He is the true God and eternal life. So Christianity is all about Yeshua. Apart from Christ, there is no salvation. He is the only true God. So how does Christianity differ from Islam? Well, many ways, but the main way, doctrinally, is what they believe about Yeshua. Let me give you a couple quotes from the Quran. Quran 5.17 says, In blasphemy indeed are those that say Allah is Christ, the son of Mary. All right, so Christ is not Mary's son. That's not Allah. Say, who then hath the least power against Allah? If his will were to destroy Christ, the son of Mary, his mother, and, and everyone that is on the earth. So he says, for to Allah belongeth the dominion of the heavens and the earth and all that is between. He createth what he pleases, for Allah hath power over all things. So the Quran says it's blasphemy to say that Yeshua is the creator. But that is, in fact, what the Bible teaches. Look at Colossians 1, 16 through 18. For by him, speaking of Christ, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might, have, he might be preeminent. Now, it says he created everything, visible and invisible. What's that talking about? What did he create that's invisible? Angels? Gods? You know, there's a lot of things he created. You know, I know a lot of people don't, we don't believe in that stuff, invisible stuff. But we created stuff that was invisible. Obviously, there was something there that he created. Now, the Quran says, The similitude of Jesus before Allah is as that of Adam. He created him from dust, then said to him, be, and he was. So the Quran says that God created Yeshua, but the Bible says that Christ created all things. All right. John 1, 1 through 3 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. Again, demonstrating the fact that He is the Creator. But the Quran says Christ, the Son of Mary, was no more than an apostle. Many were the apostles that passed away before Him. His mother was a woman of truth. They had both to eat their daily food. See how Allah doth make His signs dear to them. Yet see in the ways they are deluded away from the truth. Listen, people, to the words of the Bible. In 1 John 2, 22-23, Who is a liar? But he who denies that Yeshua is the Christ. This is Antichrist, who denies the Father and the Son. 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. So, who's the liar? It's anyone who denies that Yeshua is, in fact, a Christ. They are Antichrist. To deny the Son is to deny the Father. This condemns not only Islam, but Judaism as well. So, as you can see, Christianity and Islam are not compatible. So, how does one become a Muslim? What does someone have to do to become a Muslim? Well, every court of Islam is bound to recognize that every adult male or female who consciously and solemnly witnesses the Shahada, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. You just make that confession, you're considered a Muslim. That's it. And such persons who make this confession, they're entitled to all the privileges and rights of a Muslim, and they're bound by the duties and obligation of Islamic law. So let's look at some of the things that are required for Muslims to believe in. All right, Once they make the Shahada, once they confess this, what, is, what are they supposed to believe in? They're supposed to believe in Allah, in His existence, His right to be worshipped, His oneness, His attributes, His right to legislate. Believe in God's angels. Believe in the Holy Quran and other holy books, the Torah, the Gospel of Jesus. That's interesting. Got to believe that. And the Psalm of David. To believe in God's messengers, of whom Adam was the first and the prophet Muhammad was the last. So Muhammad's pretty high up in this scheme, as you can see that. To believe in the resurrection and the day of judgment. To believe in divine preordainment. All right, so the list of beliefs is accepted as basic to belief in Islam by every sect of school of thought. And what, what we have to understand, there are different types of groups within Islam. You have Sunni Muslims, and they consider themselves the Orthodox of the Muslims. 80% of Muslims are Sunni. Then you have Shiite Muslims. They define their basic teachings differently than the Orthodox. And then you have Sufi Muslims, and that's a smaller group within the Muslim community. These are the five pillars of Islam. They're five obligations that every Muslim must satisfy in order to live a good and responsible life according to Islam. These pillars are, the first one is the Shahada, which that's how you become a Muslim. All right? That starts it out, so this is the pillar. There is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. They will repeat that over and over and over. It's their confession of faith. Then we have the Salit, which is ritual prayers that you have to go through five times a day. Then the Zakat, the praying, the paying of alms, giving financially. This is a mandatory tax that's uh, levied annually upon the Muslims' possessions. And this tax, according to the Quran, 243, is distributed to the poor. So that's great. They take the money that you give, and they take it, and they give it to the poor. <clears throat> And then you have Slam, which is the fast of Ramadan. Now, this obligatory fast commemorates the revelation of the Quran. And Muslims fast approximately 29 to 30 days during Ramadan. The month of Ramadan is determined by the lunar calendar. And from the time of dawn to the end of the daylight, Muslims not only abstain from water and food. So during Ramadan, it's not just water and food. You have to abstain from sexual intercourse. This now it gets tougher than this. You've got to abstain from slander. Profane speech and other actions considered uncharacteristic. So you got to, it's not just fasting, you got to be nice during Ramadan, okay? 
Can't go slandering people, can't use in bad speech, and, and that's according to Quran 2.185. And then you have Hajj, which is at least one pilgrimage to Mecca in, in, the, in your lifetime. So no matter where you live, you've got to go to Mecca. This is a journey that the Muslim is obligated to take to the site of the Kaaba and other religious sites in and around Mecca. And there, when they get there, they perform certain religious rituals and prayers as if they were performed by the first prophet Muhammad and his followers. This pillar is only obligatory upon those who are physically able and have financial means to afford the cost involved. Again, that's nice, okay? Some people can't afford it. You don't have to do it if you can't afford it. None of these things seem problematic. I mean, they seem like religious observances, okay? But there's one more. Jihad, which is struggle. This is determined or defined as individual efforts to serve Allah or engage in war against the enemies of Islam. All right? Now, this concept is so integral to Islam that many Muslims believe it constitutes the six pillars of Islam. So we'll change to five. Let's go to six. This is the sixth pillar. Now, some moderate Muslims interpret this as an inner struggle. Okay, that's what jihad is. It's a struggle against sin. It's a struggle against the difficulties of life. And these Muslims will often quote verses from the Quran that teach peace and tolerance. And there are verses like that. Verses such as, I like this, 109, 1 through 6 says, In the name of Allah, the gracious and merciful, say, O disbelievers, I do not worship what you worship, nor do you worship what I worship, nor do I serve what you serve, nor do you serve what I serve. You have your way, and I have my way. That sounds nice, doesn't it? It's okay, whatever you believe. You, got, you do you, I'll do me. That's fine, okay? So Muslims will quote you these verses. Or they may quote, There shall be no compulsion in religion. The right way has become distinct from the wrong way. Whoever renounces evil and believes in Allah has grasped the most trustworthy handle which does not break. Allah is hearing and knowing. So they use these verses as evidence that Islam is a religion of peace. Now, westernized Muslims, they'll pick these verses out of the Quran that they find the most attractive, and they'll use these verses to kind of sanitize the rest of the Quran. But is this the correct way to interpret the Quran? Well, unfortunately, it's not. The Quran presents its own method of interpretation called the doctrine of abrogation. All right? Now, the Quran is one book. It's written by one man during his lifetime. Keep that in mind. Now, that's really in contrast to the Bible when you think about it. The Bible has 66 books written by over 40 different authors over a period of 1,600 years without contradictions. How do you get 40 people to write something and they're not contradicting? You can't get two people to talk about something and not have a contradiction. 40 authors. 1,600 years and yet it's one concise book. Well, the Quran, they say, is to be taken literally. But the Quran has some contradictory statements, but it tells us how to deal with these contradictions. It's explained in the Quran how to deal with it. He says, if you have two passages that contradict each other, 
The one written later supersedes the one written earlier. Okay? So you just got to figure out if they're contradicting which one was the last one written. According to the Quran, then, when Muslims are faced with conflicting commands, they're not supposed to just pick the one they like best. Rather, they're to go to history and see which verse was revealed last. Whichever verse came last is said to abrogate or cancel earlier revelations. Quran 2.106 states, Whatever verse we shall abrogate or cause thee to forget, we will bring a better than it. <laughs> or one like unto it, dost thou not know that God is Almighty? So we can get some verses, we can abrogate those, we can add new ones. All right. When we substitute one revelation for another, and God knows best what He reveals in stages, see that's the idea, there's stages there, whichever last is the one you want to hang on to, they say, thou art but a foreigner. But most of them understand not. Now, Here's what we have to understand. The peaceful, tolerant passages were written early in Muhammad's career. The more violent, less tolerant passages came later, and thus they supersede the peaceful passages. But Muslims don't want you to know that, so they'll just show you the peaceful passages and say, see, this is a religion of peace. Let's look at some of the later passages. Quran 8, 12, and 13 states, Your Lord inspired the angels. I am with you, so support those who believe. I will cast terror in the hearts of those who disbelieve, so strike above the necks and strike off every fingertip of theirs. That's the peaceful religion. Okay. Now, who's this to be done to? Disbelievers. See, it doesn't say anything about those who attack you, those who are trying to kill you. No, if they disbelieve, they don't believe like you do, strike above the neck. Verse 13 says, That is because they oppose Allah and His Messenger. Whoever opposes Allah and His Messenger, Allah is severe in retribution. So these are the later passages. This is where we get the violence from. Uh, 865 says, O prophet, rouse the believers to kill battle, is the idea, to battle, against, to kill. If there are 20 steadfast among you, they will defeat 200. If there are 100, they will defeat 1,000 of those who disbelieve, because they are a people who do not understand. And kill them wherever you overtake them. And expel them where they had expelled you. Oppression is more serious than murder. You see, you're being oppressed, so you can kill them if you want. Because oppression is way worse than murder. So just that's how you deal with them. But do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they fight you there. If they fight you there, then kill them. Such is the retribution of those who disbelieve. So because oppression, you know, Muslims feel if you're pressing us, that's really bad, then we have the right to kill you. It's okay to kill you. We have permission. Matter of fact, we're commanded to do that. 9.5 says, when the sacred months have passed, kill the polytheists wherever you find them. This is the religion of peace. And capture them and besiege them and lie in wait for them at every ambush. But if they repeat and perform the prayers and pay the alms, 
Then let them go their way. Allah is most forgiving, most merciful. Oh, that's nice. So you don't have to kill them if they bow to what you want them to do. Okay? Now, classical theologians accepted the Medina chapters supersede the Meccan chapters. Remember, when he was at Mecca, it was peaceful, okay? He was, he was outnumbered. He just kind of kept in line. When he got up to Medina, that's when things hit the fan, all right? So the Medina chapters supersede the Meccan chapters, not only chronologically, but also because the Medina verses represented Islam during a period of strength. Now, these are just a few of the over 100 verses about instructions to kill innocent people that aren't Muslim. So as you can see, the Quran does teach violence. ISIS and the terrorists are simply following the teachings of Islam. They're not radicals. They're not outliers. They're people who are serious about what they believe, and they're just carrying out their belief. Islam is not, people, a religion of peace. Now, another example of the violence in Islam is the way they deal with a thief. Quran 5.38 says, And as for the man who steals, and the woman who steals, cut off their hands as punishment for what they have earned, an exemplary punishment from Allah. Allah is mighty, wise. In other words, don't question this stuff. Allah is wise, you just cut off their hands. Muslims will do this to their own children. If a child was to steal out of hunger, a committed Muslim would not show compassion, would not feed the child, they would sever his hand at the wrist to drive home the lesson of Allah. Now, let's look at, I want to talk about jihad. There are three stages of jihad. I want to talk to you about that so we understand what's going on here and what we're up against. When we turn to Islam's theological sources and historical writings, the Quran, the Hadith, Sirah, Tafsir, we find that there are three stages in the call to jihad, depending on the status of Muslims in the society. Okay, that's how you determine where they're at. Stage one, live in peace with non-Muslims and preach a message of tolerance. This is jihad. This is the stage one. All right? Now, Guess where Muslims at are in America, what stage they're in. They're in stage one right now, okay, because they live in peace and they, they preach a message of tolerance. Now, here's what's interesting. This stage uses what they call takia. you got to hang on to this thought, takia. Takia means concealing Islam's true intentions in order to protect the Muslim community. So Muslims are allowed to lie and deceive non-believers as long as it promotes the cause of Islam. In this stage, they like to take the position of the victim. Oh, we're being persecuted. They're coming against us. You know, you want to talk about persecution? Try being a Christian in Saudi Arabia. You'll see what persecution is really about. All right, stage two. Muslims are called to engage in defensive jihad. This is terrorism. So when there's enough Muslims... And there's enough resources to defend the Islamic community, then Muslims are called to engage in a defensive jihad. This is terrorism, where they go out and do terrorist acts. Thus, when Muhammad had formed alliances with various groups outside Mecca and the Muslim community, he became large enough to begin fighting 
And then Muhammad received this from Allah. Permission to fight is given to those upon whom war is made because they are oppressed. And most surely Allah is well able to assist them. Those who have been expelled from their homes without a just cause, except that they say, our Lord is Allah. Although Muslims in the West often pretend that Islam only allows defensive fighting, the later revelations of the Quran show that's not true at all. So in this stage, Muslims who feel oppressed are allowed to fight. And we all know that America is suppressing, oppressing Muslims, so they're allowed to fight. They're allowed to carry out acts of jihad in this country if they want. Then we get to stage three. When Muslims establish a majority, they're commanded to engage in offensive jihad. All right? While just over half of Burkina Faso's population is Muslims, remember we said that early? The militants seek to force everyone to convert to Islam, and those who refuse face brutal consequences. They got over half the population, so now they're in control. They can do what they want to. And so they literally attack, they rape, they kill, they do whatever they want to get the unbelievers to convert to Islam. Once Mecca and Arabia were under Muslims' control, they received the call to fight all unbelievers. They had the power, so they were going to do it. Quran 9.29, fight those who believe not in Allah. So again, the fight is not against those who are persecuting you, those who are attacking you. They just don't believe what you believe. Nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and His Messenger, nor acknowledge the religion of truth from among the people of the book until they pay the jizya with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. Who are the people of the book? Jews and Christians. They're considered people of the book. And you're going to attack them until they either convert to Islam or pay jizya. Anybody know what jizya is? Jizya is a tax that you pay for not being a Muslim. Basically. You're not a Muslim? Okay. You pay this tax or you convert to Islam. So that's kind of, you know, it's your tax for not being Now, remember the principle of abrogation. Those passages written later take precedence. Surah 9 was the last chapter of the Quran that Muhammad delivered to his followers. All right? So this is it. These these take precedence. Fight those who believe not in Allah. Now, we also find many violent commands in Islam's most trusted collection of the Hadith. He says this, Muhammad said, I have been ordered to fight the people till they say, none has a right to be worshipped but Allah. Again, so you fight them because they don't, until they align up with us, doctrinally, until they say what we say, we have the permission to fight them. Muhammad said, I will expel the Jews and Christians from the Arabian Peninsula and will not leave any but Muslims. So here again, the criteria for fighting people is that they believe something other than Islam. It's clear then that when Muslims rose to power, peaceful verses of the Quran were abrogated by verses commanding Muslims to fight people based on their beliefs. Islam's greatest scholars acknowledge this. For instance, Abin Kathar 
Islam's uh, greatest commentator on the Quran, sums up stage three at jihad this way. He says, therefore, all people of the world should be called to Islam. If any one of them refuses to do so or refuses to pay jizya, they should be fought till they're killed. In other words, for not being a Muslim, they give a, we're going to tax them. They're going to pay the tax. And if they won't pay the tax, then they, we kill them. That's simple enough. That's peaceful, right? They should be fought till they're killed. Now, since Muhammad obviously commanded his followers to fight unbelievers simply for being unbelievers, why do Muslims in the West deny this? They deny it because in the West, we're there in stage one. And they're operating under the principle of taqiyah, subversion. You keep it quiet, you keep it down. Let not the believers take disbelievers for their friends in preference to believers. Whoso doth that hath no connection with Allah, unless it be that they but guard yourselves against them, taking as it were security. Now, according to this verse, which uses a variation of the word taqiyah, meaning concealment, Muslims are not allowed to be friends with non-Muslims. Now, I have a guy that's a Muslim who's a friend of mine. I thought he was. I mean, maybe he's operating under taqiyah. I don't know. I guess it all depends on how serious they are about their faith. Again, we got people who call themselves all kinds of things. They don't know anything about that faith. They just were born into it or, you know, it sounded cool, so they got involved in it. But if Muslims feel threatened by a stronger adversary, they're allowed to pretend to be friendly. They're allowed to go along. Abin Kathar comments, In this case, such believers are allowed to show friendship outwardly, never inwardly. Pretend to be their friend. Abu Darda, one of Muhammad's companions, put it this way, We smile in the face of some people, although our hearts curse them. Barack Obama, a Muslim, said this, Partnership between America and Islam must be based on what Islam is, not what it isn't. I actually agree with Barack Obama on that, okay? Yeah, that's right. It must be based on what Islam is. And what Islam is is defined in the Quran, not what they say it is. Because Islam is more than a religion. It's an ideology with clear socio-political agenda. Islam includes a mandatory and highly specific legal and political plan for the whole society. Sharia law. Western notions of democracy and freedom are in opposition to orthodox Islam. Mankind must be controlled by Islamic law in total and not be allowed to stray from the authority of Allah. That's what they believe. That's what they're about. Islam is thus a totalitarian utopia worldview. The fact that freedom of religion does not exist in Muslim countries is evidence supporting the view that Islam wants nothing short of domination through political control. Now, to understand Islam's political orientation, just look at Sharia law, which orders the death for both Muslim and non-Muslim critics of Muhammad. You don't dare say anything against Muhammad. I don't know if you remember, years ago, it was in, I think, believe it was in England, someone put out a cartoon, a satire on Muhammad. That newspaper was attacked and bombed. You know, they just put out a cartoon that was 
not favorable towards Muhammad. And so they got attacked because that's what these people believe. Okay? That's what they're about. The Quran and even Sharia law command aggressive jihad. So they're just following their religion. As it's written in the Quran. Sharia law is the law of Allah. Any other form of government is sin. According to the Islam. And it is the duty of every Muslim to keep striving until all governments have been converted to Sharia law. That's their point. That's their purpose. Now let me ask you this. Are you aware that we currently have three Muslims in the U.S. House of Representatives? Anybody name them? Ilhan Omar. Andre Carson. You're probably not that familiar with that name, but the name you're going to be most familiar with is Rashida Tlaib. They're all Democrats. They're Muslims. They're on the House of Representatives. Should we really have Muslims in the U.S. House when we know what they believe about Sharia law? They don't stand for our Constitution. They don't back our Constitution. They want to do away with it. Sharia law is not compatible with our Constitution. But see, again, they're moving into positions. Their goal is to overtake. All right? Barack Obama said, Throughout history, Islam has demonstrated through words and deeds the, possible, the possibility of religious tolerance and racial equality. Really? Really, Barack? Uh, how about Quran 9.29? Fight those who believe not in Allah. Force them to pay the jizya. Now, according to Voice of the Martyrs, 160,000 Christians are killed annually because of their faith. 160,000. The vast majority being killed by Muslims. If Islam claims to be a religion of peace, why is there so much oppression in every Muslim country? Though the numbers are not clear, what is obvious is that Islam is the greatest murder machine in history, bar none, possibly exceeding 250 million dead. According to Jihad Watch, the Quran's commandments to Muslims to wage war in the name of Allah against non-Muslims are unmistakable. They are, if you just read it. They are furthermore absolutely authoritative as they were revealed late in the prophet's career and so cancel and replace the early instructions to act peaceably. You've got to understand that because they're going to pull out these peaceful verses and show you, look, look what our Quran says. And you say, well, let's go to Surah 9, okay, which was last written, and let's look at some passages there and what it has to say. They said, without knowledge of the principle of abrogation, Westerners will continue to misread the Quran and misdiagnose Islam as a religion of peace. And that's what constantly is happening. See, Islam is a religion that pretends to be peaceful when Muslims are too weak to win a war. Now, I realize that there are probably many Muslims in our country who aren't violent. Many Muslims, I think, in the West, they love peace, they love tolerance, but they didn't get those values from Islam. Okay? They claim to be Muslim. They're probably born in a Muslim family. They got those views from the West. 
And now they're reinterpreting Islam based on their Western values. For dedicated Muslims, there are only two possible situations to be in. All right, if you're committed to the Quran, you're a committed Muslim believer, only two possible sources. Number one, fighting unbelievers. Number two, pretending to be peaceful while preparing to fight unbelievers. That's it. Okay? That's the only two positions you're in, according to the book. Either way, fighting non-Muslims and conquering the world in the name of Allah, that's always the goal of Islam. Now, I believe that many Western Muslims are peaceful people who are not well-educated about their own religion. And some of them don't really know about the violent nature of it. They just don't read it. They don't even know about Muhammad's life. They've never studied it. Just like most Christians don't know what the Bible teaches. It's the same thing. But understand, if you find a Muslim who's committed and is spending time in the Quran, they got to know what it says, okay? And if they're committed to it, then they're committed to killing you, all right? So Islam is a violent religious ideology. By the way, this will probably be taken off of YouTube, but it's a, it'll be on Rumble, okay? Rumble's a free speech platform, so go to Rumble, okay? <laughs> Muslim is a, a violent, Islam is a violent religious ideology that will destroy anything in its way. Our leaders and our media, they're lying to us. You know, like I said, we had a president for eight years who was Muslim. It's crazy. Just this year, 2022, the United Nations formally accepted the concept of Islamophobia. A move that will undoubtedly further paralyze any measures against Islamic aggression. You can't say anything about it. You can't say what their book even says. You can't say they believe what the book says because that's Islamophobia. People, Islam is our enemy, okay? The Quran teaches Muslims, all Muslims, fight those who believe not in Allah. They won't convert, make them pay the jizya, or kill them. So let me ask you this. What did Yeshua say we're to do with our enemies? Muslims? <laughs> Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. They're one of the greatest persecutors of Christianity is love. So the Lord tells us we're to love them, we're to pray for them. Yeshua had a non-violent message. And while obviously some people who claim the name of Christian have betrayed the peaceful message of Yeshua in history, the teaching of Yeshua have a consistent tone of peace, love, humility, Yeshua is the Prince of Peace. He never told us to kill anyone. And He disdained violence. His followers echoed this command for peace. So I believe we're called to love Muslims. We're called to treat them the way we want to be treated. We're to love our neighbor as ourselves. And I struggle with this. When I see someone, you know, all decked out in their Muslim, I just, because I know what the Quran says. But I don't know, do they know what it says? And so we have to treat them like we want to be treated. Because we're called to witness to them. We're called to tell them about the gospel of the blessed God. 
to share that with them. And Muslims are coming to Christ. Okay? They are. They're lost people and they need Christ. They're violent lost people, but they're still lost people. And we're called to witness to them. We're called to share with them. That's our calling, believers. And I think if we treat them in a loving way, we'll have open doors to share with them what it is we really believe. All right, but, but, okay, <laughs> we are called to love Muslims. We're called to witness them. We're called to share them. But, <laughs> it is my position, they have no place in the government of the United States. Based upon the teaching of their book, they're operating under the principle of Takiyah. They're concealing Islam's true intentions until they're in the majority, in power, then they want to enforce Sharia law on all of us. We must not let this happen. And this, we stop this by keeping them out of government. I mean low-level government, school, whatever. And I think we do this by simply confronting people, letting people know what Islam believes. Because we're being told they're peaceful, they're peaceful. No, we need to be aware of the book, be aware of the passage and say, listen, the Muslims believe in the doctrine of abrogation. They practice taqiyya. Look what Surah 9 says about this. Kill these people. We've got to make people aware. They desire to take over, conquer countries, and then enforce Sharia law. I think knowledge is power, people. When we know, we can stand up against it, we can fight it. So as individuals, as people in our neighborhoods and school, people we run into, we're to love them. We're to show them the love of Christ. But as far as governmental positions, I think we ought to do all we can to keep them out of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you that the Word of God is so different than anything out there, Father. Called to love people. Called to love our enemies. That is... It takes the supernatural power of God to do something like that, Lord. And I pray you'd help us to realize, as we know the truth, what Muslims' true intentions are, but help us to show them what your true intentions are, Lord, to love others. May we reach out to them in love. May we treat them with respect. May we treat them with courtesy. May we seek to share with them the gospel of Christ. But may we seek as a people, Lord, to keep them out of power as they stand directly opposed to our Constitution. Thank you, Lord, for your grace to us. Amen.